This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDBS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And this week marks the return after a whole one week. At, well, actually, no, I think it was longer than one week since we've done True Crime TV Club. Is that right? Do we have two episodes between us in the last? We had two, we had two episodes. It's been not since the first of them. Um, yeah, it, this is a, it's three weeks later. Do you know we have people... Uh, our lovely party people who correspond with us on the Facebook page for the dinner party show. That's right. what TDPS and stands for, for, by that. the way. Thank you for that. Um, they don't listen. Some of them don't listen to any of our true crime episodes. They only listen to the non-true crime ones. And then I think we have others who maybe probably <laughs> ignore the other ones and only listen to the true crime installments. Well, you know, whatever floats your boat. I, I'm not yeah. here to make... we. Honest to God, there's hundreds of episodes of uh, the Dinner Party Show, which doesn't have any true crime in it at all, ever. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could certainly, if you just want comedy variety, we've recorded hundreds of episodes of that and um, make you laugh, I hope. It always made us, it always cracked us up. Um, yeah. So Eric yeah. will make you laugh. I'm pretty serious. I'm serious Sam over here at TDPS Network. I like to focus on the dark. That was our USP when we first started. Now we're both just cranky old men. But back <laughs> in the day, Christopher was young and I was old and crazy. And Christopher was young and cranky. He was grandpa and I was crazy old guy. And it was sort crazy of perfect. Crazy old guy. I was cranky young grandpa. Okay. Right. I don't know. I always do this when we have the most packed episode of True Crime TV Club ever. I start up with the banter and I get us going on all different directions when the truth is we have quite an episode of 2020 to serve up to people today. And happy Valentine's Day. If you're listening to yes. this in real time, this is actually airing first on Valentine's Day, but you can listen to it whenever the hell you want to because that's how podcasts work. Absolutely. And I'm going to give you now our standard disclaimer about a true crime TV club as I slow down my cadence to once more check on my computer what episode number should I I like try and talk and cover let me do some some color commentary while I talk about or maybe uh, you could look because I went to look on the 2020 page and actually started playing an episode of 2020 which is not this one I think it's episode 9 season 423 9 season 43 I think that's right but hold on one second we looked it up um we looked the um we looked it up once before, and it won't take me but a second. But yeah, it's for Valentine's Day. We yes. wanted to do something that was in keeping, but still true crime. So we picked season 43, episode 9, The Dating Game Killer. Excellent on save, 2020. Eric Shaw Quinn. 
absolutely. Because that's, 2020 because that's is available episode. on the ABC website and also on Hulu if you're a Hulu and subscriber. ABC, and yeah, I think if you have the ABC app, you can watch it and on Hulu. So with commercials, without commercials, free, not free, all kinds of ways to watch it. Yeah. You just 2020, you can't get away from it. <laughs> 2020, they're everywhere you are. That's so, right. I also, the episode is entitled The Dating Game Killer. There's also a Wondery podcast out there about it, but our the, our coverage of it's only going to be one episode long, so you, you can I listen to us instead of the. I think it was actually a movie as well. I think there was, was there? A, or maybe even a, or maybe even a, a series, maybe even a mm-hmm. short run series on one of the, because I, I think so. I feel like I okay. remember watching that. I, trying to remember who played the part and I can't. I'll look it up during the break. Anyway, yeah. but in this case, we're doing season 43, episode 9 of 2020, The Dating Game Killer. So, happy Valentine's Day. If, if Don't say we didn't get you anything. <laughs> don't say we didn't warn you either. Part also, of it, well, yes. the reason we wanted to do something true crime-centric on Valentine's Day is we asked people recently, we have something called the Wednesday Question on Facebook, and I asked, or Shea Butters, excuse me, our aggrieved manservant who runs the page, asked people what their least favorite holiday was. And a fair amount of them said it was Valentine's Day for a variety of different reasons. But I think the major reason was they didn't want a holiday um, deciding what love was for them or what the most special relationship in their lives should be. Maybe it's not a romantic relationship. Maybe it's a familial one. Or how to express it. Yeah, or yeah. how to express it. So It's a um, little fraught. Like, I think if you're newly in a relationship, it can be kind of fun in the rest of the time. Or you're not in a relationship or the rest of the time. Who the hell cares? As I always say, um, I didn't have a great Chinese New Year this year, and I wasn't disappointed about it. And right. Rosh Hashanah last year, nobody said anything, said Happy New Year to me at all. So why should, yeah? and I didn't feel disappointed. And there are all kinds of holidays that don't involve me, so I don't really react to them. Right. And All Valentine's right, is a, one of them. That's I used to call it the day to remember you've been forgotten. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's that's enough banter. We had to hold for that line right there. That's okay. the takeaway right, from that's today's the, episode. That's it. That's the, it's Valentine's Day, the day to remember you've been forgotten. Now, been forgotten. And now the dating game killer. Wyoming. 1977 is where our episode of 2020 And I opens. have to say, what an interesting place for them to choose to start this uh, this this, ser- this show. Yes. Because I was like, when I saw that, I went, maybe I've accidentally tuned into the wrong episode. Because Wyoming, like I thought yes. this was going to be all about L.A. And I was like, what the hell? Well, and listen, we're not spoiling anything to tell you. This is about a serial killer who appeared on the dating game show in the 70s. Okay, that's just the log line. You know that going in. And then, yes, we start in Wyoming, 1977. And I was like, okay. Uh, We're interviewing a woman named uh, Kathy Thornton. She is talking to us about her sister, Christine, who was a free spirit who went on a road trip and met up with, went on a road trip with her boyfriend, excuse me, and decided they were going to go to Montana to pan for gold, as one does. <laughs> gold panning in Montana is She was a very, a, very free spirit. Yeah. Unfortunately, she and the boyfriend had an argument in southwestern Wyoming, and he leaves her, which is really unfortunate because she is pregnant. I don't know if it was his baby. Did they make that clear? I never... I assume so, but it wasn't entirely clear. It was, um, yeah, it was pretty, 
it was a pretty asshole thing to do. Like it was yeah. like, oh, like, you know, if he left her in downtown St. Louis, okay, well, that's unfortunate. And they had a fight, but he left her in Wyoming. Very rural Wyoming, not Jackson yeah, Hole at a ski resort. Of yeah. fucking nowhere. Maybe right. even the far side of nowhere. It was really nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, she's from San Antonio originally, so her sister goes there looking for her when she stops returning phone calls and no one knows where she is. The sister attempts to file a missing persons report. We've heard this story many times before. She can't because Christine is a grown woman. Um, that may go differently today. Uh, in 1982, five years later. No, I wonder if it was. They used to have the 48-hour rule and all of that, but they said, yeah, she's a grown woman. She can go anywhere she wants to. She's not missing unless, you know, she was supposed to be somewhere and she I, wasn't. So I know I always say this, but I feel like part of this is that a lot of people try to report people missing who aren't missing. Like, he didn't call me back and we're dating and he's not interested anymore. I'm going to go file a missing persons report because I just otherwise don't see why they would be so restrictive and when they can act. Well, honestly, they can do a welfare check. I mean, you know, yeah, like that's a reasonable that. ask. But this is a woman who literally got in a car and left town and she's missing. How do you define missing? Yeah, absolutely. Like she left and you don't know where she is. Well, that was kind of her plan. So she could be panning for gold. We're not going to start looking for somebody who literally left. Um, yeah, she's not there. Well, okay. So in 1982... Five years after this disappearance, a herder comes across human remains in the region of southwestern Wyoming where Christine was last seen alive, and it is the body of a 25-year-old female and the bones of an infant. There's no ID, so the case remains cold for many years, and later, a a photograph of Christine discovered in the possession of a killer would lead investigators back to this cold case. But let me tell you something. It's going to take a while. we got a lot to a cover before we end up back here. time. And that's the way they did it. And I thought, what an interesting way to begin this, because I didn't know that aspect of this story. I thought that was a really interesting sort of start, um, yes. starting place for this particular I mean, really twisted, lurid tale. So everybody buckle up. Buckle up. Because there's a lot to tell. 1968. Let me make sure I'm Ba-bam. not my notes here. So we're going back in time, which Eric usually hates if it's a fictionalized program. You hate five years earlier. Yeah. You hate oh the tease and then Makes five years me earlier. Crazy. But this one, <laughs> since it's already happened and I actually know how it played out, it's it's less of it. It's not really a tease thing. It's that's when all of this kind of really began, although it may have begun sooner. Anyway, go ahead, Christopher. So they give us a brief introduction to what the dating game was, and it's a ribald, I never get to use that word, game show, uh, in which a bachelorette asks contestants of three potential bachelors who are sitting on the other side of a partition on a soundstage. The questions are... um, Suggestive. Suggestive, all that sort of stuff. And And so are the answers. And the 2020 episode presents it as an outgrowth of the sort of late 60s, early 70s free love culture. That it's about TV Absolutely. trying to kind of catch up to the counterculture and new values and, and uh, all that sort of stuff. But first, we're going to talk about ba-da-ba-da. an eight-year-old... They also had the um, Tijuana Brass play the theme song. 
Christopher oh, yeah? hates it when I do that. Yeah. <laughs> Tijuana Brass. Just, the, we'll Herb just, Albert yeah. and the Tijuana Brass. I think it was called Tijuana Taxi was the name of the song that they used as their theme song. Did they use it in the special, in the 2020 special, or did they, they did not have the not. rights to it? Yeah, they didn't have the they rights to it. They did not, and they probably didn't have the rights to it, which would surprise me because Disney owns the studio that used to be A&M Records, which was... but. They bought it from the Muppets. The Muppets bought the studio. So, and I knows. think the dating game was an ABC show, and 2020 is an ABC yeah. show. Yeah, which anyway. is owned by Disney. But maybe they didn't figure anybody but me would be old enough to remember the Tijuana Brass, and so they didn't play it. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> we are introduced then to Tally Shapiro. She is an eight-year-old girl living at the Chateau Marmont Hotel, uh, which is just steps from where we are actually recording this podcast. Uh, in our neighborhood here in West Hollywood. Uh, Her father is a music industry executive and they're staying at the hotel because their house had a fire. She is walking to school when a car pulls up beside her and the driver says, I have a beautiful picture I'd like to show you. Do you need a ride to school? Tally says, I don't talk to strangers. But he keeps up next to her on the sidewalk and he says, I know your parents. And Tally got in because she was taught to respect her elders. Meanwhile, thank God, another motorist across the street... Thank God, the luckiest little girl in Los Angeles... ...sees this happen. He doesn't like the look of it, and so he follows the guy's car. Uh, Meanwhile, inside the guy's car, the driver tells Tally that they're going to go back to his apartment. And Tally... Who is being interviewed, spoiler alert, is a grown woman now, so uncross your fingers. She makes it out okay. She says that was when she wanted to jump out of the car and that even at eight years old, she knew something was truly wrong. The Good Samaritan who was following them has put in a call to the police. Tally says that the last thing she remembers is going up to the apartment with the guy and everything else after that for her is black and thank God. Based on what yeah, we're about thank to God, because it was bad. Uh, The call comes in to the LAPD and is responded to by Officer Chris Camacho. He goes to the apartment. He knocks on the door. The guy on the other side of the door says, I'm in the shower. Give me a minute. I'll be right out. Camacho peers through the window and he sees that's total bullshit. He can see the guy. He's not in a towel. He's not wet. Something's wrong here. He knows. But he is naked. Yeah. Oh, he's naked. Oh, thank good catch. I missed that one. Um, Camacho Burst the door down. This was so horrible. And he sees Tally on the floor, blood everywhere, and there is a steel bar around her neck. So basically, he was in the process of strangling her with a pipe. Um, Camacho, while being interviewed now, still alive, completely comes apart while describing the scene. I mean, sobs. It was was still, and this is 1968 or even before. This was a long time ago, and he still cried telling the story. He says he has a life or death decision. Save the girl's life or chase the suspect, who has, of course, run out of the apartment altogether. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best 
to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. A second LAPD officer arrives at the scene of the apartment where Talia Shapiro, Tally Shapiro, excuse me, has been found. Um, he misinterprets the cries of the first officer who has arrived on scene who is trying to tell him to follow the suspect who has run out of the apartment. Instead, the second officer thinks the first officer is calling for help. So he goes to the scene where he is trying to revive a very badly injured and assaulted and um, violated eight-year-old girl. So the suspect gets away. But in the apartment, they find his identification and they learn that he is a photography student at UCLA named Rodney Alcala. Also in the apartment are hundreds of photographs of young women and young boys in various stages of what is described as undress and vulnerability. Tally is in a coma for 32 days. Everybody thought she would die. Um, she... Uh, when she wakes, her parents never discuss what happened with her ever, and they move her out of the country. And they leave to the country. Yeah. To the safety of Mexico, which was like, really? Okay. Yeah. Well, that was a, it was a long time ago. Yeah. Um, so, Detective Hodel is introduced at this point. Now, if you are a true crime junkie, as many people who listen to us are, you know that Detective Hodel actually has an interesting history that is not covered in this special. He is the author of a book called Black Dahlia Avenger and posits that his own father was the killer, the Black Dahlia killer. Right. Um, that they do not, I don't think they could go into that, right? Or did I Did miss not it? mention it yeah. at all. Never even came up. They, in fact, I think went out of their way not to because yeah. what a distraction. Um, he uh, gets the case. He's investigating. He goes to UCLA and he starts to look into Rodney Akala, who is still missing. And everyone he talks to, professors, students, says Rodney would not hurt a fly. Can't He's a great be guy. Yeah. Uh, very well liked in general. So the special then cuts again to 1943, and now we are plunging into the biography of... 1943? Isn't it? Isn't, yeah, they go to 1943 when he's born. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> 1943, they say. He was born Rodrigo Jacques Alcala Bucar in San Antonio. Uh, older brother, older sister, younger sister. His father left the family. They moved to Los Angeles, where he attended private Catholic schools. Everyone who knew him liked him. It's the same story as the detective. And he had a pretty great UCLA. life, apparently. It was yeah. not like there was some, he was disadvantaged or abused, or he seems to be very bright and have had a really kind of a ideal childhood. Um, but this, there was something similar here to what we saw in the case of Robert Hansen, which we talked about twice in two previous episodes of True Crime TV Club and a True Crime Movie Time, which is the problems really became clear when he joined the military. So yes. Rodney um, joins the army in the early 60s and he goes AWOL several times. And that's when the trouble really starts to start. And Yes. Uh, in 1963, he gets a pass and goes to New York. And while there, he assaults a girl by hitting her over the head with a Coke bottle. She runs off. Um, the military ultimately decides that Rodney has suffered a nervous breakdown. And the psychiatrist at the hospital, however, who sees him, thinks it's a lot more serious. 
but the military says, yeah, we don't think it's quite so serious. We're going to give him an honorable discharge without a single blemish on his record. Uh, and at that point, he returns to California and enrolls at yeah, UCLA Fine Arts. Yeah, he just strangled somebody. You know, let's not get all yeah. let's not get all caught up in the details, right? Uh, and it's around then in the in the story in this sort of timeline that we're covering that he attacks Tally and then uh, vanishes. So he's been in the wind ever since the attack on Tally Shapiro, and three years after that, the FBI puts Rodney on the ten most wanted list. Um, Detective Hotel. I love gets, this one. He gets a call from police. This was like something out of a horror movie, right? That, I, just see, I just loved it. It was yeah. It was Friday the Thirteenth time. Detective Hodel gets a call from police in Vermont saying, we've got your guy. We've got Alcala. He's been living under an assumed name, John Berger. He's in New York. He's attending NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. Um, and they say part of the reason we get a lot of little history lessons about the counterculture movement and TV along the way. But this is one about the history of crime in New York. At this period in New York history, the city is suffering a major crime wave. So a guy like Alcala can really. suffering. Yeah. The city is a disaster. <laughs> yeah. So we're introduced to a young woman named Cornelia who is dating her handsome new boyfriend, Leon, and she's dreaming of becoming a TWA stewardess. Uh, when she's accepted to the job, she gets an apartment with her friends on East 83rd Street in Manhattan. And this part of Manhattan is actually called the girl zone because women are living on their own for the first time, which sounded like a new show on streaming, the girl zone, about flight attendants on their own. Uh, then on June 24th, 1971, Leon, Cornelia's boyfriend, is working at the Brooklyn DA's office and he gets a call in the middle of the day from Cornelia's mom. Cornelia is missing and she's not answering her phone. There's no response at her front door, so Leon calls the cops. They go in through the back and they find her body. She's been strangled, raped, and has bite marks on her breast. At this point in time, there were 2,000 murders in New York that year. And so if it was a case like this where they didn't have any leads and it went cold, they just, there just wasn't anybody to pick up the torch. So now we go to the horror movie detail we were talking about just a moment ago. We're in New Hampshire where we discover that Rodney is spending his summer as a camp counselor at an arts camp in the wilderness under his alias, John Berger. Charming. August... 1971. Ah, the days of my childhood. <laughs> when nobody did background checks on anyone. On anybody. So he's taking uh, kiddie porn pictures of the count of the students at the. Uh, they don't say that, but you assume, given his history, he's bound to be doing it. Right. So Art August pictures. August 1971, two campers are walking in the rain away from camp, and they decide to duck into the local post office for some shelter. And there, on the most wanted poster on the wall, they recognize their counselor, Mr. Berger. They tell a counselor back I at camp. I love that detail. Who return? I, can you imagine, like, being a young person and you look up on the FBI? I, and I Mr. Berger is on the wall? Oh, my God. Like, I just, I would have lost my... Crap. Maybe they did lose their crap. I don't know. They're not I'm interviewed. sure they did. I'm sure they came back hysterical, which is why the counselor said, okay, you know, stay in my office and I'll go have a look. Yeah. We should also add here, this is, if you've never watched 2020 before, instead of a voiceover or a narration, they interview like, 
200 on staff consultants to sort of give you the story. It's not a bad technique, but I'm not giving you all their names because they're not actually players in the case with one exception. But they, they sort of fill in the details for you as we go along. So you don't have the sort of a lot dateline. of people. Right. It's a uh, yeah. so manicurist. Barbara says <laughs> she had long, dark hair and then we we're done and we never see her again. Yeah. Author Janine says this is when she moved to L.A. Um, so August 12th, 1971, Detective Hodel from the LAPD and his partner, they go to Vermont. They pick up Alcala and they fly him back to Los Angeles Tally's parents don't want her to testify, which is a big disappointment for the detectives. Uh, the detectives find Alcala to be low-key and introverted, and he is charged with all the crimes against Tally Shapiro, but because of the lack of testimony, he's given a plea deal with an indeterminate sentence. Never and heard of that before. I'd never heard of it either, but we get an explanation, which is basically it gives the parole board greater flexibility in determining whether somebody can get out and it gives someone a yearly parole review. So basically every year from when you go in, you come up for parole. And, and the they board... decide if you're better or if you should stay in lockup. Yeah. He's released. It's almost like a mental health kind of ruling because he was being analyzed. Yeah. And that's going to be a big, I thought the point they made about that later was pretty interesting. The yeah. role that analysis, the attitudes towards psychiatry during this period. In 34 months, he is released from prison. Now we are introduced to the guy who I thought Eric would want to be his boyfriend, and that is Matt oh, yeah. Murphy. Matt Tall, Murphy. All angles. Big looks daddy. Great in the suit. Mm-hmm. Daddy is in charge. Get in the car. Yes. I'm not, we're going to dinner. Yeah, that's what works for me. He is a former district attorney from Orange County. If you have ever watched Dateline, you have seen Matt Murphy. He's like a regular on uh, on that show and many other true crime shows as well. I think he's retired now. But anyway, um, Matt Murphy steps in to say basically that, um, and his involvement in the case will become clear subsequently, but he's sort of offering commentary in this moment. This is an area in which a lot of people were putting a high premium on the power of psychiatry. And because Alcala was agreeing to see psychiatrists because he was being quote-unquote treated, they thought he was rehabilitated. But Murphy's opinion is that this is a time in history where people don't really have a grasp of the fact that psychopaths don't actually benefit from therapy. Because they'll just tell you whatever you want to hear to manipulate you into doing what they want you to do. Right. So wouldn't you know it, Rodney is soon arrested smoking weed in Huntington Beach with a 13-year-old girl. Which, thank God, he was arrested before anything else happened. Exactly. He gets two and a half years in prison. When he gets out, he asks to go on vacations, and the parole officer says, sure. (laughs) So he goes to New York. He goes back to New York. The days of my childhood. (laughs) Right. The days You're a killer? of no Here. background checks. Go and teach kindergarten. That'll right. be fine. Be so a he, priest. 1977, he goes to New York. And New York at this point is described as just being a horror show. The son of Sam is Killer really, is killing it's people. It's even worse than the last time we were at New York. It's even... the. The, the place is just falling apart. It's yeah. bankrupt and they can't get a loan and 
No, but the police won't even go into the subway. It's terrible. And this is I, we had this conversation recently about like when did when was New, when did New York stop being terrifying? Because I remember as a child, even when I was born in 1978, which was a year after this, New York was this crime ridden island of terror, and then. Suddenly, Disney took over Times Square, you know, and you were saying that the, some of the worst days were during this period. This was the Mayor Lindsay period, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that persisted right on through. I mean, I, there's the Reagan to New York drop dead um, being the headline. And I think the post. Um, wow. But yeah, they wouldn't loan them any money. I mean, it went through a period of like I lived there in the 80s and it was um, I, it was just it was. You know, every man for himself. Like, honest to God, the police would not go into the subway. There was something called the, um, oh, what were they called? The Guardian Angels. Right. They had yeah. wore these red berets, and you were always delighted to see if they came down into the, the subway because they would actually, you know, like, stand up for you. They were there to try and uh, help protect people You just having the temerity to use the subways. It wasn't until um, the go-go 90s, until... Um, the money came pouring mm -hmm. into the city, um, the Clinton years, that New York really began to turn around. Even when I went for um, early on uh, around the publication of, of Say Uncle, which would have been 1994, it was still, it was better, but it was still kind of, um, there were still dicey areas. It had moved out of Times Square and over to, I think, 8th Avenue. You know, mm -hmm. but it was still all of the terrifying stuff was still there. It was just an improved version. And then with the big influx of the um, all the money from the Clinton years and all the, the economic recovery that that um, actually, you know, that not doing voodoo economics actually offers us. Um, mm -hmm. They were able to afford to redo the cities. It's also, ironically, the Rudy Giuliani period. Mm -hmm. um, so it was the sort of. Crime and it was the that period of we're going to actually prosecute criminals for criminal behavior um, that led to some bad things that abuses. Have been done, yeah, excesses um, in the, in the name of um, yeah. of mass incarcerations. But but on the go upside, the 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 salvation of New York. Yeah, um, nineteen seventy seven again. So. Um, the beginning of this period it's that we were describing. It's still hell. The son it's of Sam, serial killer, is murdering people. Rodney Alcala meets a woman named Ellen Hover, and it turns out her father is the owner of Ciro's in Hollywood, which is a very famous nightclub. It's not open very anymore, famous. but it's sort of a historical touchstone in Los Angeles, at least. Uh, July 13th and 14th is the famous New York City blackout. Uh, everyone, I think, has heard about this. The power was out for two days. The... Um, it was the dead of summer. It was so hot. And it was. Yeah. And because it was this terrible period, it just became this sort of lawless. It was like the purge. Yeah. People looting and burning. It was just a nightmare. It was, it was the nightmare of the nightmare. It was the cherry on the dog shed. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold.
At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. On July 15th, the day after the New York blackout, Ellen Hover, who just met Rodney Alcala, is declared missing. Ellen's mother calls her friend Anita, asking after Ellen. Nobody knows where she is. The story reaches television, probably because of uh, Ellen's parentage. The police go to her sure. apartment the next day and see um, an entry. They enter into her apartment. She's not there, but they see on her calendar she was supposed to meet a guy named John Berger, which suggests dun, dun, dun. that... Rodney was once again vacationing on parole and using his old East Coast alias. July 18th, 1977. There is no computer system in use at the time that the NYPD can use to link the burger alias with Rodney Alcala. So Alcala returns to L.A. and gets a job with the L.A. Times working as a typesetter because that's what one does when one murders women oh all over the country. Oh, my God. It's he, just one of those stories where it's like this is a time period and they talk about this. It's the, the heyday for serial killers because there isn't any of the sort of interconnectedness now that we can use to catch up with people, oh, yeah. do background checks and know where they are or even follow up on them. Right. Uh, so uh, he at work for the L.A. Times, he is bringing in photos of nude girls. Now, they don't specify whether or not the girls are underage or not, but they say that his co-workers just thought he was artsy and weird. And it was the 70s, man. And like free love yeah. and hang loose. I don't know. I think hang loose is Hawaiian. Um, so uh, the FBI is finally able to connect the dots between Rodney Alcala and Ellen Hover's disappearance. Alcala is questioned. He admits to having spent time with her. He says he took her up to Westchester County outside New York City to photograph her, and that was the last he ever saw of her. They still haven't found her body, but 11 months after she vanished, her body is eventually found in an area by the Rockefeller estate close to where Alcala said he last saw her and did his photo shoot with her. Her clothing is found nearby. As we hear so often on this show, it's all skeletal. The remains, there's probably some predation on the remains. She's identified through her dental records. There's no forensic evidence leading them to her killer. And now the special makes a little teeny tiny error that kind of annoyed me, which is they start to set the scene in what is Los Angeles like during this period in the late 70s. Um, And they say that serial killers are operating right and left, the Hillside Strangler. And then they mentioned the Night Stalker, who was not actually operating in the 70s. That was an error. He doesn't start operating until into the 80s, which is after the rest of this case kind of unfolds. Um, but I think me. they were saying that time period. Yeah. Okay. That's because I just wanted because to Alcala goes that. on, continues on into the 80s. Yeah. Uh so now we, and I'm going to do a little bit of summarizing here because we have a lot of material to get through. It was a densely, densely packed episode. I will give them credit. Like I usually say with these one hour condensations, it's like we needed more exploration here. They kind of touched on every piece of it, even if they weren't able to do deep dives. But basically what begins to happen is that a series of young women with very similar profiles 
are murdered in Los Angeles. And one is named Jill Barkham. She's found off Franklin Canyon Road, down the street from where Marlon Brando is uh, living at the time. She's beaten so badly, her face is unrecognizable. She's clearly been posed in a way that is about displaying her for all who arrive at her death scene. Um, In one of the worst aspects, I think one of the worst coincidences of the case, one of Jill's friends was actually murdered by the Hillside Strangler, which is awful. Uh, then in December 1977, a beautiful young woman named Georgia Wickstead, who works as a cardiac nurse, doesn't show up to drive her friend to work as she usually does. She is found in her apartment, in bed, badly beaten, blood everywhere. Her body is stripped nude and she's been strewn across the floor. Uh, there is a handprint on the brass bedding um, and no one to match it to. Nobody in her life presumably matches the palm print that they find on the frame of her bed. Charlotte Lamb is murdered next. She's a legal secretary living in Santa Monica. She just wanted to go out dancing with her friends. Her friends didn't. She went out with presumably other people or by herself. Her body is later found in an apartment complex she had no connection to. She's been strangled, raped, murdered, and brutally posed. And it is around this time, in the midst of all of these murders, that our Rodney Alcala goes on the dating game. His episode aired. Because absolutely no way of knowing if that's who he was going to. I just, it's terrifying. So they interview the an executive producer for the dating game. And then his wife, who was like the contestant manager, she was sort of in charge of contestant selection. And the EP says he saw Rodney's interview and his application and wrote, no way. He thought the guy was totally weird. But his wife said, oh, no, we got to use this guy. He's got something. He's got something, you know, he's got something he's using he's to kill women is what he had. He had this yeah. horrible psychopathic charisma. Anyway. Um, and he, yeah, how he looked. So they put him on the show. And we see clips of him on the show doing the thing. Like, what fruit would you be? I would be a banana. And then you could peel me. You know, it's like, ah. It's so gross and weird. And when you look at it, as they say, they talk about it. When you see it in retrospect, it really is horrifying. But in the moment, it was sort of the suggestive, raunchy kind of atmosphere that they were trying to create on the show because that's what people watched it for. I, You know, I remember the newlywed game was on when I was a kid. And it was the same thing. Like, only they were married couples answering raunchy questions about each other. And they would Definitely say, making whoopee pod. instead of sex. They're like, making whoopee. <laughs> my fav- my all-time favorite um, uh, uh, jo- I know game show say, joke right? is, right? He was like, "Where? where is the, the... The question was, where is the strangest place that you've ever had sex? They ask the wives this. And so the husband then comes out to try and answer the question um, and match the wife's question. And she said, you know, in the garage or in the mm-hmm. backseat of the car. And so they said, so, um, Bob, where is uh, Randy? Where is um, where is uh, the strangest place that you've ever had sex? And Randy says, definitely in the butt, Bob. <laughs> and Bob Eubanks literally just goes down. He's at the podium and he just hits the floor. He can't manage to stand oh up anymore. Oh my God. 
so, the funniest. And even Bob Eubanks denied that it happened. And then they showed him the clip and he went, oh my God, that really did happen. It happened. So it look happened. for it on YouTube. It's probably yeah. out there somewhere. Okay. Meanwhile, back on the dating game. He wins. He wins the dating game. Oh my the, God. The female contestant spends like 10 minutes with him after the show and calls the producers the next day and says, I can't go out with this guy. He's too weird. Like, he's just too weird. And they're like, you don't have to go out with him. That's like, that's not a requirement that you go out with him. It's just a TV show, whatever. So, um, so So yeah. So she saves her life. So she probably freaking saved her life. Uh, the murders continue. Jill Parento, uh, very similar victim to Charlotte Lamb, is found in in a very, uh, similar murder scene to the um the Malibu and he victim begins that we posing to. them in this strange way where their backs are arched so their breasts will be more prominently displayed which i think is right that kind of developed over time absolutely so then um we get into i hesitate to use the word heart of the case but this really is the heart of the case and i think if they didn't have an hour and a half which is what 20 is they 2020 is excuse me they would have really zeroed in on this part of the story and done the other murders as kind of, I don't know, side stories. But Rodney on June 20th, 1979, is he's living with his mother. He gets in his car, he drives to Huntington Beach, and he runs into a 17-year-old girl on roller skates named Lori Wirtz. He's taking pictures of her and he's trying really hard to get her in her car and she ain't doing it. She's She's been taught. You don't get in cars with strange men who want to take your picture. She no matter sees how him. cute they are. Exactly. And do we think he's cute? Like he was sort of sexy. In the in a time way. period, he yeah. was cute. Like right. it's like Burt Reynolds was the sec- a sex symbol in his day because he was hairy and swarthy and none of the things that would be considered a sex symbol today. It's just, it was the moment. Mm-hmm. He had long hair and dark eyes and Latin good looks and yeah. Right. Okay. So. Lori Wirtz doesn't get in his car, but she sees him drive away in the direction of Huntington Beach, and that is going to be an important detail. At 2.30 p.m., Rodney ends up on the beach talking to a young woman named Robin, no, young girl, excuse me, Robin Samso. She's 12. Yeah. And she is there at the beach with her friend Bridget. Bridget's spidey senses are going off. She doesn't like this guy in the same way that Lori Wirtz didn't like this guy. He clearly right. wants to take their picture. He wants to get him in the car. Bridget says, no, no, We're no. Out of here. Robin, let's go. A mom also sees this scene and comes over and is like, what's going on? Why is this man talking to these two little girls? Rodney leaves when the mom shows up. Robin and Bridget go home. Robin has a job at her ballet studio where she answers the phones as a way of paying for her ballet classes. And she is running late. So Bridget says, okay, take my bike and just go straight to the ballet studio. Do not stop. Don't stop. Don't stop. And they're interviewing her and she says, I really remember that detail. It was Mm -hmm. important for me to say that to her. And I did. So and she never saw Robin she again. She never saw Robin again. Robin never makes it to the ballet studio. There's no sign of her. There's no sign of the bike. I mean, it's gone without a trace. Robin's mother files a missing person's report. Bridget meets with a sketch artist. The drawing is Rodney Alcala. That's just it. Like yeah. It's a perfect likeness of him. Twelve days later, a park ranger in the Sierra Madres finds human remains and it's Robin's body, and it's been badly scavenged. They find one of her shoes and a beach towel. 
July 24, 1979, Rodney is arrested at his mother's house in Monterey Park, which is a neighborhood here in Los Angeles County. Inside his residence, they find a receipt for a self-storage facility in Seattle. This is going to become incredibly important. The paperwork is not part of the warrant, so they can't collect it. And this was news to me. But it's I in, thought that was interesting. Yeah, it's in plain sight. But it's so in the, plain sight. Yeah, so the cops can write down what they can see on it. Um, sure. One of Rodney's sisters, not interviewed, she isn't interviewed, she goes to visit him in jail and they discuss this storage locker in Seattle and Rodney says it's good that they don't know about the storage locker. What kind of conversation was he having with his sister that he would say that without confidence? Um, they, they track it down, they open it up and inside is a treasure trove of evidence that completely breaks the case. Thousands yeah. of pictures, thousands of trophies, jewelry, earrings, keepsakes... Robin's sister is flown up to Seattle where she's able to identify a set of earrings that belong to Robin. In 1980, Rodney is tried for Robin's murder. And this was the part of the story that was like, holy shit. <laughs> this was Killer. the part. Robin's mother was so devastated that one day she brought a gun to the courthouse. And again, because it's a time when there were no metal detectors in courthouses, you could just sneak a gun yeah. in in your purse um, and in the end, she, I don't know how to put it respectfully. She basically decided not to pull the gun out and shoot Rodney right there in the courtroom. But, but that was, was her damn plan. Close. That was her plan. She said that she heard Robin's voice telling her not to do it. And this is when the part of the case that makes you want to pull your hair out starts. After less than five hours, the jury convicts him and sentences him to death. He's taken to San Quentin, which is death row here in California. It's just outside San Francisco. Um, in 1984, he manages to secure an appeal, and the verdict is overturned by the California Supreme Court because the jurors had been improperly informed of Alcala's sex crimes. So I'm assuming that's crimes that had nothing to do with murder were ruled irrelevant. I don't know. Okay. For whatever reason, it was overturned and he was sent to retrial. So in 1986, two years later, he is retried. There is a new prosecutor. The second jury convicts him and he is sentenced to death again. Again. In 2001, and Rodney's death penalty is overturned. He's now 58 years old. He makes oh, a claim God. regarding ineffective assistance of counsel, which asserts that Rodney's attorney did not put forth a strong enough defense on his behalf. And that is when Eric's hot daddy, Matt Murphy, enters from Orange County. Huntington Beach is in Orange County here in California. I'm doing the eyebrow thing. The case gets assigned to hot Matt, as I wrote it in my notes, in 2003. Uh, he decides to go back to the evidence. He has the jewelry pouch discovered in that Seattle storage locker, and he matches DNA, something we talk about all the time here on the podcast, taken from because Charlotte Because now it's Lamb. possible. Right. Now it's possible. Technology has advanced. Charlotte Lamb, Jill Farento, Georgia Wickstead, and Jill Barkham, all victims mostly in that L.A. period leading up to Robin's murder. He has DNA evidence matching him from that. 2020 is set for the third death penalty trial. Rodney is now 66. And because he's a psychopath, he decides to represent himself. And that was finally the break that we needed. But 
it allowed him to cross-examine Robin's mother, which is one of those which mo- just like, makes you want to oh, kill him yourself. I, I mean, the strength of the of Robin's mother to be able to sit there being interrogated by her twelve-year-old daughter's murderer. I mean, my God, three times convicted. Yeah. Um, but he does a catastrophically terrible job of representing himself. I mean, as you would expect. Because he attacks the mother of a murdered 12-year-old on the stand in front of the jury. It is not a good ploy. Right. And, um, and so he goes to, like, he goes to, um, jail again, but there was actually, no, this was the new thing. This was the new thing, right? This was the twist at the end of the story. Tally Shapiro... The eight-year-old girl who was abducted in 1968 agrees to testify. Uh, what her parents wouldn't allow her to do years before, she now does. Uh, it it adds. And I to liked her. her. She said, yeah. "I was not his victim. I was a survivor." Yes, absolutely. Never a victim of that man. Yeah. And so she puts the drives the nails into his coffin, and uh, the penalty by the jury is death. And when that is announced in the courtroom, the spectators literally applaud. Literally. They show the clip. They begin applauding. Yeah. Uh, okay. So then, oh my God, we have a whole new... <laughs> this was such yeah. a densely packed episode. It's a huge story. in 2019, story. the state of California decides that we're not going to have the death penalty anymore. Right. So Robin's mother, who said that she was basically hanging in to see Rodney die passes away before he does. Make of that what you will. New York City, 2013. Alcala is now being extricated to New York for the two murders that he is accused of committing there. He pleads guilty. He gets 25 years to life. And the police then make a decision to release the photographs they found in the Seattle storage locker. And that's how we end up back at the very beginning of our special. Remember that in Wyoming. Wyoming, 1977. Christine Thornton is in one of the photographs, looking happy, sitting atop a motorcycle in the southwestern Wyoming wilderness. That was also in the storage locker. That was in the storage locker. So the this case has now gone from Los Angeles to New York City, all over the country, and now we have a small local law enforcement agency in, I think, Sweetwater County, Wyoming, which is investigating their own local murder committed by Rodney Alcala. And if Um, you watch the show, this part, you should have a cold compress standing by. Because if you thought Matt Murphy was hot, let's introduce you to Detective Jeff Sheeman. (laughs) Who was watching? Eric watched it before I did, and we don't talk about it before we do the podcast. But I just got a text from him while I was watching it, and it said, Jeff Sheeman. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I said. (laughs) Jeff Sheeman. And Christopher, and a few hours later, Christopher texted me back, oh my God, I literally said, daddy, out loud. (laughs) It did. Yeah. So, um, just hottie Mick hot stuff. I want him to solve my murder. I don't want to have to get murdered for him to do it. Absolutely. No. Yeah. No, but I would like to be interrogated. I would like to be interrogated by Jeff Sheeman. Uh, So, Kathy Thornton, the sister of Christine gets an email from her son who says, I found this article featuring all of these photographs from Rodney Alcala's locker, and she recognizes Christine off of her pinky toe because she's wearing a flip-flop in the picture. But to be sure of it, 
uh, Kathy submits her own DNA so they can test it against the DNA found in Christine's remains, and they discover in 2015 that it is absolutely a match. The Wyoming detectives work with the Huntington Beach folks to put the match together. They find the motorcycle Christine is sitting on in the photo was also in Rodney's possession, so it's a it's it's a double hit essentially DNA and the motorcycle. And they have the picture, and they literally go to the actual spot. They line up the skyline with the photograph of of Christine. Yeah. Um. The Wyoming, we already covered that. They work with it. Okay, so in 2016, Rodney is now 73 years old and he is in terrible health. He's confined to a bed and the Wyoming detectives travel to interview him. They describe his medical cell as being like something out of a horror movie. And I think they basically say if he's not going to die, this is about as close to it as you can come. It's just a disgusting environment. It was kind of where he belonged. They show him Christine's picture. This is the picture of Christine atop the motorcycle in the Wyoming wild. And he begins to trace her body with his finger and tap it. And they realized, even though he is staying completely silent, that he is basically reliving the crime. When the they, rape and murder uh-huh. of this poor woman. When they ask him if he killed her, he doesn't admit it. But he admits he was there and he knew her. So they charge him with murder in that county, but they ultimately decide he can't travel without great expense, so they decide not to try him. To leave him lying in his own filth in that cell. God. Um, Where he eventually died. We will make a point to do this, and if you're listening to this podcast and we haven't done it yet, remind us, and I'm talking about you, Angelina Farmer, because you're really good at that. Um, All of the unidentified photos recovered from Rodney Alcala's storage locker in Seattle are available at abcnews.go.com slash 2020. And we, excuse me, we'll make an effort to post those because like, who knows? I mean, we were, we were talking about this in our Billy Newton episode with Detective Lamberti. It's like long shots can solve cases. You really have no idea. Maybe somebody will see a picture of somebody that they recognize who's been missing because they literally don't know. And it's clear from this guy's pattern that he was, you know, just killing and killing and killing and killing and killing and killing. I don't know what happened to this guy, but yeah, he was kill crazy. Yeah. And, and he was getting away with it. Yeah. He was charming and, you know, for his day, he was an attractive man and it just, he got away with whatever he wanted to do. I really, when I finished this one, I was like, can we do white collar crimes next? <laughs> I was like, you know, because it was just, it was the the mix of adult victims and child victims, I think, was what was so incredibly disturbing about it. Like, it's not like I want to believe that serial killers yeah, who kill adults are better, but you know what I mean. Even when he wasn't killing them, there were all of the people, all of the kids who he photographed, as they said, in various states of undress. So he was also like making child pornography. Like it was everything about this guy was just the worst. And because of the times in which this unfolded, he was able to sort of slip through a lot of sort of cracks in that particular facade. And Mm -hmm. just... What a terrible, terrible, terrible story. Um, And uh, what an awful contestant on the dating game. I mean, really? (laughs) That poor woman. That poor woman. Jesus. But good for her. But like, good good for for her her because like, oh no. That's the thing, right? Like, it's the My Favorite Murder slogan. Fuck politeness, man. If you have a weird feeling about somebody, don't go on that date. You know, like, don't go. Don't go. Yeah. What is it they say? Um... Stay, stay sexy and stay, don't get stay murdered. Sexy and don't get murdered. Yeah. Like, yeah. 
I'm with them. Yeah, I anyway. Well, I feel like all I did was talk over you this because I had 8,000 pages of notes, but it was such a complex story. And it wasn't like there wasn't much where I looked at it and I was like, well, we didn't need this part. We didn't need this part, you know, because it was just it was all so riveting. No, and if we seem to rush over some of those victims, it wasn't because we don't revere them. It was because there were so many of them. This guy was really a monster. And so we didn't mean any disrespect. No, no. And I think it was about trying to get to Robinson. We had less time to do it in than the than the 2020 did their their episode was an hour and a half yeah. but and it, it was packed we didn't want to give short shift to robin's story because it was just it was ultimately the thing that did him in but it was also so horrible and the pain of robin's mother and everything she suffered and having to go through those retrials i don't uh anyway also not for nothing um the Dating Game Killer was a movie in 2017 starring uh, Yermo Diaz, who is the on uh, Nurse Jackie. Oh, oh my God. Okay. Yeah, he was he played Rodney. Uh, Matt Barr is in it, which is obviously why I've watched it. Uh-huh. Absolutely. All right. That well. would definitely explain that. So there's also a movie version of this if you prefer a more fictionalized. And it's pretty true to the facts of this case. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, it's it's there, and there's the 2020 version if you want a more in-depth deep dive. But really, we really covered it. It yeah. was it was all there. Well done, Christopher. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Um, we'll be back uh, with more episodes, more True Crime TV Club. Uh, but no True Crime next week. Next week we'll find something yeah. new and a little lighter. We'll have a little break from it because we did a lot of crime this month. And if you aren't watching out for our Wednesday question on Facebook, do check it out. We post it every Wednesday. It's a great time to hear from you. And it's not like, do you like our podcast? It's like, what holiday do you hate? And who do you not want to ever have to vote for again? Sometimes it becomes a subject of... Absolutely. An episode. Absolutely. So you never know. Absolutely. Until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.